This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Feminism, a very short introduction by Margaret Walters. If you've never heard of the Very Short Introduction series by Oxford, they're, well, a series of very short introductions, about 100 pages or so, to complex topics. They're great primers on any subject you're curious about. I've actually used them before to get up to speed on topics I plan to teach. And given the subject matter for the next couple weeks, this seemed like a good one to recommend to start. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 329, In the Beginning, Woman Was the Sun, Part 1. This week we're going to start on one of the more complicated topics we've covered, and one that I think is really important. We're going to discuss our first twinned biography of two of the most famous figures of early Japanese feminism as a way of exploring the history and origins of the feminist movement in Japan more generally. So, no preamble, let's dive right in. But of course, before we get to our figures, we have to talk about historical context on this podcast, so let's talk about it. First, we have the historical status of Japanese women to discuss. Now, of course, this is a huge topic in its own right, but to distill it to its essence, pre-modern Japan was an interesting place in terms of the rights of women. On the one hand, I don't think there's any way you could argue that pre-modern Japanese society was not patriarchal. There were absolutely a lot of legal and cultural restrictions on the kinds of things women could and could not do. On the other hand, these restrictions were way less severe than what you saw on the Asian mainland in places like China or Korea. For example, during the Heian period 1,000 years ago, Women in the Japanese aristocracy did enjoy limited property rights, a degree of personal independence, far beyond their counterparts in contemporary Chinese or Korean aristocracies. Women did on occasion take leadership roles. Remember that Japan's imperial throne has been held by a woman ten times throughout the country's history, compared to just once each in the history of China and Korea, Uzetian for China's Tang Dynasty and Queen Seondok of Korea's Kingdom of Shilla. Much has been made of why these differences exist, and frankly that's not a subject I want to get into too deeply because it involves a lot of introspection about archaeological and early written evidence that's way beyond our scope here. Suffice it to say that the most convincing argument I've seen is that in Japanese prehistory, women seem to have held a lot of sacred ritual authority, and the survival of traditions related to those rituals in early Shinto likely had some impact on the status of women in Japanese society. 
Yet as the years went on, more and more customary and legal restrictions were placed on women by successive Japanese governments. One of the biggest reasons for this was the growing popularity of a new branch of philosophy known as Neo-Confucianism. Now, Confucianism has a long history, stretching back to, well, Confucius, about 2,500 years ago. However, for much of its history, Confucianism lacked any form of systematic intellectual approach. Confucian scholars represented different schools who disagreed on a great deal, and who didn't even engage with some questions. Most notably, the role of women in society is largely avoided by both Confucius and his most famous successor, Mencius, in their philosophical works. So about a thousand years ago, a group of Chinese scholars, who we now call Neo-Confucian, took it upon themselves to build a new variant of Confucian, hence the name Neo-Confucian. This new Confucianism would be systematic, accounting for all aspects of its vision of an ideal society. It would be endorsed by the state as an authoritative interpretation of the ideas of Confucius, which it was in both Korea and China, as well as a few other places. And it would provide the basis for a totally Confucian social order. Now, Neo-Confucianism is a fascinating subject in its own right, but we're not going to get too deeply into it because A, it's really complicated, and B, it's the middle of the afternoon and I have not had enough drinks to start talking about metaphysics. What's important for us is that by pretty much any modern standard, Neo-Confucianism was extremely misogynistic in its treatment of women. Women were restricted to an entirely domestic, secondary role. When they were praised for anything, it was in terms of their obedience to men. For example, China's final imperial dynasty, the Qing dynasty, made something of a habit of commemorating virtuous women. Virtuous, in this case, meaning things like women who never remarried after their husbands died young, and women who sacrificed to protect the men in their lives. Those of you who listen to my other podcast, Criminal Records, criminalrecordspodcast.com, might remember the case of Lee San, the brother who accidentally stabbed his sibling during a fight. Lee San's mother interceded on behalf of her remaining son to ask for mercy, but in the original record of the case, the mother is never identified with a given name. Unlike her sons, she is only recorded as, essentially, Mrs. Lee, defined solely in relationship to her marital family and her male offspring. Neo-Confucianism never found the kind of foothold in Japan that it did in Korea and China. It never became the governing orthodoxy and dominant philosophy of Japan in the way that it dominated the intellectual life of the continent. But particularly under the Tokugawa shoguns, Neo-Confucian ideas did begin to diffuse into Japan and developed something of a following, particularly in terms of attitude towards women. Throughout the Tokugawa period, increasingly greater restrictions were placed on women, barring them from places of responsibility they had once been able to hold if no male candidates were available, and restricting their individual property rights in favor of the eldest male of the family. Probably the most infamous example of Neo-Confucian misogyny in Japan is the work of Kaibara Ekken, a male Confucian scholar from Kyushu who, in the late 1600s, took it upon himself to write a series of practical guides to ethical Confucian conduct for different groups of people in Japanese society. Most infamous among these 
is the onna daigaku, or greater learning for women, which is pretty reflective of Neo-Confucian views of women, and which became a popular teaching tool for explaining to women what their position in society was quote-unquote supposed to be. I will quote some of it for you now, just so you get a flavor for it. A woman has no other lord. She must look to her husband as her lord and must serve him with all worship and reverence, not despising or thinking lightly of him. The way of a woman is to obey her man. In her dealings with her husband, both the expression of her countenance and the style of her address should be courteous, humble, and conciliatory, never peevish and intractable, never rude and arrogant. That should be a woman's first and principal care. When the husband issues instructions, the wife must never disobey them. In doubtful cases, she should inquire of her husband and obediently follow his command. And here's a little bit more, just from a bit later in the text, really to drive it home in case it wasn't clear already. The five worst infirmities that afflict women are indocility, discontent, slander, jealousy, and silliness. A woman should counteract them with self-inspection and self-reproach. Hence, as viewed from the standard of a man's nature, a woman's foolishness means that she fails to understand the duties that lie before her very eyes, does not recognize the actions that will bring blame upon her own head, and does not comprehend even those things that will bring calamity to her husband and children. Such is the stupidity of her character that it is incumbent on her in every detail to distrust herself and obey her husband. So that's enough quoting from Kaibara Ekken, and I feel really gross having had to say all that out loud, but I think it is valuable for you all to hear exactly what this sounds like in less abstract terms than my broad summary. Kaibara's most famous pronouncement was the idea of the Three Obediences, something he took directly from Neo-Confucian ideas in circulation on the Asian mainland. This was, simply put, that women owed their obedience to their fathers when they were young, to their husbands when they were older, and if he died, to their oldest son. It is important to note, of course, that while Kaibara Ekken and his ilk may have been setting the official social orthodoxy, that's not to say this was the experience of every single woman who lived during Tokugawa times in Japan. Neo-Confucianism was an ideology of the elite, particularly among the lower classes, things rarely conformed to the ideas of people like Kaibara Ekken. A farming family, for example, needed all the labor it could get regardless of some far-off philosopher's ideas about the domestic role of women, and the thing about being dependent on someone else's labor is that it gets a lot harder to ignore them when they start demanding more of a say in things. Even within the samurai elite, these restrictions did not prevent women from having and exercising substantial informal influence over the family's decision-making process. Yet I also do not want to minimize the extent of restriction women faced during this time. Substantial legal and social restrictions on their independence did make it much harder for women to forge an independent identity from the men in their lives. And then came the Meiji Restoration and the fall of the old samurai order, and that's when everything went a little topsy-turvy for a bit. The government of Imperial Japan, which took power in 1868, took as its primary goal the creation of a prosperous, westernized state. Some of the steps needed to achieve those goals were pretty obvious, building a powerful military to defend state interests, 
furthering the industrialization of Japan, building a strong central government, all that exciting jazz. But other questions, especially social questions, were more ambiguous. What kind of social order would best support the state's goals in building this prosperous nation? And chief among these vexing questions was what role women were to play in this grand vision. We've talked a bit about the details of this before, see episode 192, so I'm not going to rehash it completely, though it is worth noting that both the Confucian social traditions and the Victorian social traditions that the Meiji leadership were pulling from were not what we would call friendly towards women by any modern standard. Simply put, the eventual outcome of this cultural back and forth was a state policy that represented a mix of old Confucian traditions with more modern Victorian influences coming from the West. These Western influences were still pretty conservative. Victorian social mores did not assign a lot of freedom of action to women and did largely confine them to domestic roles, but they did also include the very first impulses of what we might begin to call feminism, including radical ideas like women should be educated, though at separate schools for men, and maybe they should have some kind of say in politics. The new state's eventual settled line on women was that they should aspire to be ryōsai kenbō, good wives and wise mothers. In other words, still very defined in relation to the men in their lives in traditional Confucian fashion. However, this formulation did at least implicitly recognize that this Confucian tradition assigned women an important social role in terms of running the household and raising the next generation, and thus, the implication was that the work done by women in the home, because it had importance, deserved respect, an argument that would be familiar to, say, a first-wave American feminist like Jane Addams, who made a very similar argument in pieces like The Modern City and the Municipal Franchise for Women to make the case that women deserved at least some access to local voting rights. So this is, I would say, an improvement on Kaibara Eken's profound misogyny, but that's also setting the bar so low that it's buried underground, so perhaps that's not much to write home about. Now that we have this background, let's talk a little bit about our actual subjects. The first of these women is Hiratsuka Raicho. Raicho is a pen name, and actually a totally badass one at that, since it literally translates as Thunderbird. Her birth name is Hiratsuka Haru, but pretty much nobody uses that, and I will follow convention by sticking to her pen name as well. Hiratsuka Raicho was born in Tokyo in 1886, to a family of civil servants in what we would call the lower middle class. Like a lot of civil servants in the early Meiji period, her family was of samurai background originally. She actually had a distant ancestor, Hiratsuka Tamehiro, who had fought on the losing side at the Battle of Sekigahara, way back in 1600, and who had gotten his head chopped off for his trouble. Raicho's father became active in nationalist politics in the 1880s. He actually briefly pulled his kids out of school and homeschooled them out of a belief that the mainline school curriculum was too westernized. Her autobiography mentions that from an early age, Raicho's family spent a lot of time fussing about her appearance. In terms of the stereotype of traditional Japanese womanhood, even as a young girl, Raicho did not fit the model of beautiful. Her hair was frizzy, her face was wide, her skin was dark, all of these things were considered to be marks against her. She recalled her mother constantly rubbing this hair ointment into her scalp, 
in a desperate attempt to get the hair under control, and that her parents repeatedly ignored her protests against this treatment. Her family also lamented her birth sex. Raicho was the family's third daughter, and from a young age, she was subject to a constant barrage of comments about how much better it would have been for the family if she was born a boy to ensure continuity of the Hiratsuka family name. As you might imagine, none of this was particularly great for the self-image of young Hiratsuka Raicho, especially because her perceived unladylikeness was constantly contrasted against her older sister, who was apparently considered to be far more attractive and thus a better prospect to get married and start a family. When she turned 17, Hiratsuka decided on a fateful course of action. She wanted to go to college to continue her schooling. Her father, a nationalist of samurai background as he was, opposed the idea, stating that he believed women belonged in the home and that his duty to support his daughter was coming to a close, what she should be worrying about was less book learning and more getting hitched. Fortunately for Hiratsuka Raicho, her mother interceded and convinced her father that with all this newfangled stuff about women being good wives, wise mothers, it was important that she at least get some additional schooling so that she could be, well, a good wife and a wise mother, so that she could raise up smart kids and prove a useful and helpful companion to her future husband. And so the family did agree that Hiratsuka Raicho could, in fact, go to college, so long as she majored in home economics in preparation for her future housewife duties. And so at the tender age of 17 in 1903, Hiratsuka Raicho went off to school. Her chosen school was the new Nihon Joshi Daigaku, or Japan's Women's University, which in 1903 was all of two years old. It had been founded by a man named Naruse Jinzo, who is also a fascinating character in his own right. Naruse, too, was from a samurai family and had been ten years old when the shogunate collapsed. Looking for meaning in a world where his samurai status meant a lot less than it used to, in the 1870s he found it. He met a group of Japanese Christian preachers who converted him to Presbyterian Christianity. Around this time, Naruse also started to get involved in education, opening a series of rural schools around Japan and spending the next few decades as a teacher. Eventually, in 1890, he would make his way to the United States and spend four years studying English language and literature as well as Christian theology at a pair of schools in Massachusetts, respectively Clark University and Andover Theological Seminary, if you're curious. In 1894, he came back to Japan and returned to his business of education, as well as Christian missionizing. However, one of the things he learned about during his time in the States was the growing field of women's higher education. Women's colleges were a growing field in the late 19th century, fueled in large part by the same rationale that drove Hiratsuka's family to agree to send her to school, that women needed an education to be maximally effective as wives and mothers. Naruse found this line of reasoning convincing and thus decided to open a women's school in Japan, hence the Japan Women's University, which remains around to this day and which Naruse would lead until his death in 1919. He also literally wrote the book, or at least a book, on women's education and why it mattered. Hiratsuka Raicho actually read it as a young girl, which is how she learned of Naruse and his school. 
The school had precisely three majors when Hiratsuke Raicho attended in 1903. Home economics, English literature, and Japanese literature. Even though she was on the home economics track, Hiratsuke Raicho got to take classes in all three. And, as had been the case for so many for so long, her education proved tremendously eye-opening for her. She would develop a passionate interest in literature, as well as a general interest in religious theology from Naruse's lectures, though Christianity specifically did not do it for her as she investigated and rejected its theology. Instead, she came across two texts during her studies which would radically reshape her life. The first were some works on Zen Buddhist philosophy which, unlike Christianity, really clicked for Hiratsuka, especially the bits about seeking the way of the Buddha, not outside but within yourself. The second were some texts on what we might call first-wave feminism, as well as one of the most famous works of literature in the early feminist movement, Henrik Ibsen's A Doll's House. If you're not familiar with Ibsen, he was a Danish playwright. A Doll's House is based very loosely on the collapse of one of his close friends' marriage. The play centers a woman named Nora as the protagonist and essentially talks through her crappy marriage before having her leave her husband. Ibsen did not really intend it to be a feminist play by his own account. However, it was received as such by many contemporary women because A, it centered the perspective of a female character, as Nora was the protagonist, B, it portrayed Nora's anger at the collapse of her marriage as legitimate, and C, it showed leaving a crappy husband as a viable option. Particularly in East Asia, both Japan and China actually, a doll's house would be something of a sensation when it was translated, as young women would read it to get a sense that they could demand more of a say in their own destiny, and as defenders of the old guard wrung their hands about how a new generation of young, corrupted Noras would destroy the family values of Confucian society. After college, armed with these newfound literary passions, Hiratsuka Raicho sought out a community to share her interest with. She came across a lecturer named Morita Sohei, an author who was a disciple of one of the most famous writers of the time, Natsume Soseki. Morita ran a series of literary discussion groups in Tokyo to which Hiratsuka naturally gravitated, as she started to make a living as a Japanese-to-English translator of literature and poetry, and wanted to maintain a connection to the literary world to stay abreast of the trends of the time. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on her relationship with Morita Sohei, because spoilers, they will have, I guess you could call it an affair but it tends to come up a lot when discussing Hiratsuka's life, so I do feel like we have to deal with it at least to an extent. So here's the deal. When these two met, Morita was in an unhappy marriage. He gravitated towards this passionate young woman, and she seems to have reciprocated his interest to at least some extent, but exactly how much is unclear. You see, Morita would later write a novel, Bayen, or Soot, based on his affair with Hiratsuka. She would also write a very different account in her autobiography half a century later, which is the one I'm going to give more attention to. Morita's account is generally the one that tends to be better known, even though, by his own admission, his account was a work of fiction merely based on the actual events. 
So according to Hirotsuka, Morita grew closer with her and eventually started pressing for a sexual relationship. She enjoyed the emotional intimacy, but her increasing interest in Zen Buddhism, she was already affiliated with a temple by this point and undergoing some training in meditation, meant that she was not interested in anything physical. Eventually, Morita decided that their relationship should be consummated in a very different way. Consumed with a fatalistic romanticism, associated with in-vogue authors from the West, Morita told her that he wanted to consummate their doomed relationship by murdering her and then writing about the experience as he spent the rest of his life in prison. For reasons that, I will be clear, are not entirely clear to me even after reading her autobiography, she agreed to this. Perhaps despairing of her own life, given how she'd been treated as unwanted and not good enough, perhaps she was dealing with that same literary fatalism, which was very stylish at the time. Perhaps, as Anne Lee wrote in her review of the most recent translation of said biography, Hiratsuka simply felt that Morita was a coward and would never go along with it, and wanted to indulge his fantasy that he was the kind of person who could do something like this. Now, if Anne Lee's guess was right, then Hiratsuka read Morita like a book, because when the time came to actually do the deed, Morita collapsed in tears. The two returned to Tokyo, where their plan had actually been uncovered. Morita had left a long-winded letter explaining it. The Hiratsuka family forced him to apologize and barred him from ever talking to Raicho ever again. The whole thing was quite a public scandal. You can tell it was a big deal because it got its own status as an incident, the Bayan incident, named for Morita's novel. Papers made great hay out of these intellectual deviants rushing off to commit violence in the woods because they read some Russian authors. Some papers even published pictures of Hiratsuka's face. As a result, her public reputation was ruined. She was actually kicked out of the Alumni Association of Japan's Women's College and was only reinstated posthumously in 1992. To be honest, I've never known what to make of this episode. I include it here because it would be strange not to, but it certainly doesn't fit well with my own image of Hiratsuka Raicho. I also don't really want to dwell on it that much because it's really not what she's famous for. She's far better known for what came after. You see, in the interim of all of this, she'd managed to finagle her way into a new school, Narumi Women's English College, which was, well, exactly what it sounds like. From what I've been able to find, the school has since closed. While continuing her English studies, Raicho was stewing from her experience with Morita. Regardless of what actually happened, it's pretty indisputable that she was treated as an object of scorn and scandal, while he had been able to write a damn best-selling novel about the experience and make a great deal of money off of it. So she started thinking, was there some kind of way she could use her skills to put her perspective, and the perspective of Japanese women, out into a world where the male perspective was so dominant? That question would eventually lead her to seek out some like-minded women and to found a magazine called Seito, or Blue Stockings, a reference to the proto-feminist intellectual club for women in England during the early 1800s called the Blue Stocking Society. The magazine's goal was to provide a creative outlet for Japanese women to express themselves and to critique social structures they viewed as holding them back. 
it would be part literary magazine, part journalism, and fully devoted to presenting the image of women's liberation and equality. Hiratsuka was not the only founder of Seito, but she became far and away its most influential writer. It's not hard to see why. Her article fronting the first issue ever and explaining the reasons for Seito's existence is one of the most famous pieces of feminist writing in Japanese history, in which she makes a powerful case for feminism by directly referencing Japanese tradition, in this case the myth of Amaterasu, the sun goddess. Here is a bit of that article in translation by the fantastic Teruko Craig. In the beginning, woman was the sun, an authentic person. Now she is the moon, a wan and sickly moon dependent on another, reflecting another's brilliance. Sato herewith announces its birth. Created by the brains and hands of Japanese women today, it raises its cry like a newborn child. Today, whatever a woman does invites scornful laughter. I know full well what lurks behind this scornful laughter. Yet I do not fear it in the least. Is woman so worthless that she brings only nausea? No, an authentic person is not. In the beginning, woman was truly the sun, an authentic person. Now she is the moon, a wan and sickly moon, dependent on another, reflecting another's brilliance. The time has come to recapture the sun hidden within us. Reveal the sun hidden within us, reveal the genius hidden within us. This is the cry we unceasingly cry out to ourselves, the thirst that refuses to be suppressed or quenched, the one instinct that unifies all and sundry instincts and ultimately makes us a complete person. Our savior is the genius within us. We no longer seek our savior in temples or churches, in the Buddha or God. We no longer wait for divine revelation. By our own efforts, we shall lay bare the secrets of nature within us. We shall be our own divine revelation. Women will no longer be the moon. On that day, she will be the sun as she was in the beginning, an authentic person. Now, Seito and the women who ran it, who collectively called themselves the Seitosha, or Blue Stocking Society, drew a lot of attention very quickly. This kind of defiant messaging, combined with the magazine's willingness to carry works by pretty much every feminist under the sun in Japan, for example, Yosuno Akiko, who we've talked about a few times before, see episode 267, was featured a few times, combined with their willingness to run even the most scandalous and suggestive Western literature in Japanese translation, it turned some heads. So did Hiratsuka Raicho's columns, which included lines like this, The new woman brings down a curse on yesterday. The new woman will not endure to be someone who silently walks the path of the oppressed, old-fashioned woman. The new woman is not satisfied with a feminine existence reduced to ignorance, to slavery, to being a mere slab of meat for the sake of male egoism. The new woman seeks to destroy the old morals and laws created for the sake of male convenience." Unquote. Or this particularly famous line from her 1913 essay, To the Women of the World. Is there to be no other business for women other than the business of procreation? Is a woman's sole vocation to be a wife and mother? I wonder how many women have, for the sake of financial security in their lives, entered into loveless marriages to become one man's lifelong servant and prostitute." Unquote. Conservative social critics 
from papers like the Tokyo Nichi Nichi Shimbun, lambasted the magazine and the blue stockings more generally as a hotbed of deviants, adulterers, and lesbians. Other papers, like the Chuo Koron, one of the most famous ones in Japan, were not as, let's say, aggressive in their coverage, but carried interviews with Blue Stocking members, interviews where said members were very forthright in their opinions, which kept the magazine very much in the public eye. Sato also ran into regular trouble with the Japanese government. The imperial government had very strict morality laws that allowed for censorship of published material on the grounds of indecency, and in fact, the very first issue of Sato was actually suppressed because it dealt with an issue considered to be taboo, a story depicting the breakup of an arranged marriage. Other issues were suppressed for things like carrying erotic short stories, or more to the point, short stories where women thought about sex in a way that suggested they enjoyed it and had any agency over who they did it with, or for carrying articles calling for women to marry for love, or to avoid arranged marriages, or for women to have access to abortions and reproductive health care. Hiratsuka Raicho would start off as editor-in-chief, but would actually leave the post in 1915, handing the job over to another woman, Ito Noe. Hiratsuka's writing was beautiful, you see, but it was also extremely intellectual in a way that limited the magazine's circulation. An issue because the magazine's detractors and government censors were also pressuring newspaper stands not to stock the magazine at all. Sato was coming desperately close to folding for lack of cash. Ito Noe was able to keep the doors open for another year, but in February 1916, the inevitable happened. Sato ran out of cash, the magazine ran its last issue. In total, it circulated for only five years. However, the magazine's impact would last far beyond its lifetime. The leadership of Sato had been able to accomplish at least part of their goal. Suddenly, the question of women's roles in Japanese society was much more in the public eye than it had been. Sato had succeeded in forcing the discussion, even in spite, or perhaps because, of the manufactured controversies which surrounded it. And Hiratsuka Raicho was far from done. We'll pick up with her and our second subject starting next week, but for now... That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patron Jeremy Abels for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part two.